This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you'll see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, word in heaven, Lord, we come before the myriad of saints and angels who are singing holy, holy, holy. And indeed, Lord, your name is holy. And may your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray for the kingdom to come, the kingdom of Christ. We pray that the Lord will come and gather from all the four corners of the earth all his people those whom he redeemed by his blood. Lord, we know that you are such a wonderful and faithful shepherd of the sheep, and none of your sheep are going to be lost. As we are here bearing testimony of your faithfulness, seeing where we used to be and where we are, and the testimony that you have put on our lips to say Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ died and resurrected. All these wonderful things, Lord, we now speak because you called us to yourself. But now we pray as we go in this chapter of John that you may help us with understanding of what it is that you would have us to understand this day about things pertaining to salvation, pertaining to our standing before you, things pertaining to the work that you accomplished. Lord, we just ask that you give us spiritual ears to hear. And Lord, we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. John eleven twenty three to 27. John chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. We're just going to read these verses and have a very long introduction, which is the whole sermon is an introduction. Jesus said to her, and that's Jesus talking to Martha. Your brother Lazarus will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. That's the word of the Lord. Our title is Sleep, Death, and the Resurrection. I usually have about ten titles, and I have to choose which one to use for the message. Sleep, Death, and the Resurrection. Or number two, first ten, the theology of the Sadducees. The theology of the Sadducees. 
the gospel is the gospel because it is good news. It is some glorious hope of those who are in Christ. For the gospel to be the gospel, we have to understand the problem. Because if we don't understand the problem, then the gospel becomes just some other very good Christmas story, some story that ends very well, but it's not much different from some Clint Eastwood movie. In Christ, the elect overcame all their enemies. The gospel is good news because we overcame all our enemies that would do harm to us as to be sent to hell. And our enemies are sin, death, the law of God is your enemy, it's not your friend. Because the law only condemns you because you can't give the law what the law requires. So condemnation, and you also have the devil as your enemy because he takes advantage of your sin. Also, he is the one who came and brought about the fall of man. So the devil is never your friend in that regard. But the good news of the gospel is the reversal of what happened in Genesis 2.17. And you may know Genesis 2.17 by heart. And this is where God said to Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the day that you shall eat you shall surely die. God was not talking about a probability or a chance that this was going to happen. He was not saying, well, maybe you may die. Maybe you may eat of the fruit, but just be careful. No, God says in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. And your death shall be accomplished right at the time of your eating. And at the time of eating, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, both of them. They realized their shame for the first time. They realized their lack of righteousness. They realized their lack of covering. Their separation from God at that moment was their spiritual death. And their separation from God was separation from the blessed communion and access that they used to have with God. So Adam and Eve died at the moment that they disobeyed the commandment. And so they died spiritually because physically they still continued to function. But for Adam and Eve, their death, their separation was not a total separation from God because God continued to preserve them for the coming of Christ. They could not die physically right away because why? They carried the hope of salvation. Christ was going to come through as the seed of the woman. Christ had to come. And so God kept them, but they still had to experience some measure of the curse that had been pronounced on them. But the unbeliever, the unbeliever, when they die, they are going to undergo the full penalty of eternal destruction. According to Apostle Paul, that will be away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his strength. And that's from 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. So eternal destruction is being away, taken away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. And that does not mean one ceases to exist. No, it is just a removal of all that is good from a sinner that which they used to enjoy on account of the elect. The only reason why we have all the wonderful things that we have here in this life is on account of the redeemed church of Christ. The government is, is to our service. The companies, everyone here on earth is doing things for our sake. Because as soon as God removes his elect from here, guess what? He's going to bring it down. He's bringing it down. And when you have been removed from the glory of Christ and the strength of Christ, you are left with no strength. You are left with no comfort. You are left with no friend. You are left with no communion with nobody. When someone loses their house, they lose their job, they lose their friends, they lose their wife or husband, they lose their kids, they have been ruined. Why? Because all their sense of comfort and communion has been removed from them. And we know that from the story of Job. Job had all that taken away from him. And the unbeliever shall be in a similar state, but only worse and eternal. And that's what I see the scriptures as declaring. The scriptures, I don't think they are saying the believer, when they die, they just cease to exist. And that's going to be the subject of our teaching in the light of the gospel. What becomes of you when you die, even if you die tonight? Where do you go? What really happens to your soul? Who are you? Who is Mike? Is Mike just some physical body with some battery connected to him? Is that the teaching? Is that the understanding of the scriptures? Is that the understanding of Jesus? Jesus promised eternal hell and fiery torments. And so we have to pay close attention to what Jesus said because it is he who made hell. It is he who came from heaven. He knows about things. He has always been there. So his opinion about anything really matters. <laughs> My opinion doesn't really matter. <laughs> so our opinions to try and redefine things so as to soften the words of Jesus are not helpful and they mean nothing in the bigger scope of things. They are just giving us a false hope. We are just getting ourselves a pacifier. And hopefully that even at 42, I can get a pacifier and take myself to sleep. <laughs> Jesus did not die to deliver us from eternal unconsciousness. There's nothing bad about being unconscious and feeling nothing. There's nothing that is bad about being unconscious. There's actually way too much comfort in being unconscious. And so the gospel does not say Jesus came to die that he may redeem us from unconsciousness, from the pain of unconsciousness. It does not say that. He says he delivered us from the power of sin, from hell, the devil. He delivered us from the wrath to come. And the rest to come is not eternal unconsciousness, people. That does not make sense. Jesus died to remove us from the fiery torments of God's judgment in hell. And God is going to do whatever he pleases 
and there's no unrighteousness in him, whatever he decides to do with you and me, there's no unrighteousness. And so eternal life, eternal life is not just duration of time because in the theology of Jesus, in the book of John, he ties himself to eternal life. He ties what you say about him to eternal life. And eternal life is not necessarily just duration of time, but according to Jesus in John 17 verse 3, it is to know the true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So unless you know the true God and you know Jesus Christ, then you don't possess it. You don't have it. Eternal life means salvation from condemnation. Eternal life means salvation from condemnation. And so it applies only to the redeemed. The unbeliever is never said to have life or eternal life. It's nowhere in the text. The unbeliever is never said to have eternal life or life. Why? Because life is in the context of redemption. Anyone who does not have the life of Christ is by definition dead, even if they are alive in the flesh. If you do not possess the life of Christ, because Christ says he gives his people his life. He gives. So if you have to be given life, it means naturally you don't possess that life. Why? Because there's no created thing that intrinsically by their own nature possess life in themselves. We don't naturally possess life in ourselves. All life is in God and is sustained by him. The unbeliever, as I said, is never said to have eternal life and yet they shall live eternally. They live eternally not because they have power to sustain themselves, but because God sustains them. Because all things are sustained by him. In Christ, all things hold. (laughs) Right? And he holds all things by the word of his power. So it is the power of Christ that keeps the constitution of the unbeliever in hell that they may experience the punishment. So eternal hell is not eternal unconsciousness. It is to continue to exist without the life that the redemption of Christ gives. There's a quality to the life of Christ. And living eternally does not mean one is immortal either. We live eternally because our life is hid in the eternal one. Our life is hid in Christ. The unbeliever lives eternally not because they are immortal, but because God sustains them by his power. Only God is immortal, but he sustains all things. So living eternally means one is sustained by the one who is immortal And God does not run out of gas like a car. He doesn't need to refuel. He has all the power. He does not get hungry. He doesn't get tired. So God sustains the life of the saved through the life of Christ. And he sustains the unbeliever in hell by his power. And I do not see any theological problem with an eternal hell. And if I do see a problem with an eternal hell, Where am I anyway? What does my opinion really matter about what Christ has said? 
God is not calling us to see if we agree with what he has determined to do. He is not inviting us to have our input on the matter. He is just declaring to us, he's telling us how things are and how they are going to be. And if Jesus threatens it, then it is real. He means it. He is God, he does not lie. And so the death of man began with the fall into sin by Adam and the consequent separation or alienation which shall be finalized in hell. So death came by the one sin of the one man and that death, unless one is removed from it by the obedience and blood of Christ, shall culminate in their eternal ruin and torment in hell if they are not in Christ. But we need to know what that means. This is going to be a long teaching. I, I need it for me too. I was debating on whether I should do two or three messages. Then I realized that if I do that, I'll end up with five. So I decided to just make it one because I have to move. But we need to know what that means. Who is man and what is man? What died in man and what is the nature of that death? And what becomes of the soul of the one who dies in this life? And unless we understand the constitution of man, then we cannot understand what becomes of them as far as God has revealed. Genesis 2.7 Genesis 2.7 Moses says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Man consists of two parts. The material and the immaterial. The dust of the ground, that is the physical, the tangible, the material substance of man. This is the head, the hands, the feet, the organs, all the mechanical parts that form the physical hardware and shape of man. That's the dust. But there's no life in the hardware as constituted. God had to breathe life into the nostrils of man and man became a living being. And so, there's something interesting about the breath that God breathed into man. God does not breathe in and out so as to sustain his own life. God does not have lungs. He does not need to breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide that he may continue to live. You can't put God on a respirator. To breathe is creaturely. For God to breathe means to give life. To give life to man as a creature that was devoid of life. And what was breathed into the nostrils of Adam was not a tank of oxygen. It was a life animating principle. It was the soul the immaterial part of man. And this soul is the life principle in man. Why? Because men do not run like us. The life of man is not in the battery or in the food that they eat. It's not. The life 
of man is in the soul. It is the soul that was breathed into man that bore the image of God. Is the soul. Is the soul that bore the image of God. For the soul is spirit in nature. It is immaterial, as I said, which means it does not have moving parts. The soul does not have nuts and balls like a car engine. So the soul is what makes the person and the body is the hardware that is animated by the soul. The Bible predominantly uses soul and spirit interchangeably to mean one and the same thing. There are others who say that a human being is body, soul, and spirit. And so they make a distinction between the spirit and the soul. And there are a few verses that almost insinuate that, but the larger testimony of the Bible is that a human being is soul and body. And so that's what we're going to take in our teaching. Okay? The soul is what has consciousness. It is what has personality, the mind, and memory. The soul has consciousness and memory and does not need your brain. But the memory and function of the soul is mediated through the hardware of the brain. When the hardware of the brain fails, like with Alzheimer's patients, it is not the soul that is failing. It is the hardware through which consciousness is expressed that is failing. But the brain is not the soul. It is the means by which the soul expresses itself and the means by which the soul and the body are integrated. The brain is the means by which that's the connection point between the soul and the body. But the soul does not need the body to survive. It is the body that needs the soul to keep functioning with the identity and consciousness and morality of a human being. So the soul is the identity of the person. The physical body is the dwelling or the housing is the container for the soul. Is the container. When one gets demon possessed, this is very important. The man who had the legion of demons, what did they do? They came and overpowered the soul of the person and overtook the control of the person. So they took the control of the faculties of the brain and then the demon begins to express its personality through the hardware of the person. So the brain is the control tower and the soul controls the body through the hardware of the brain. So when you have demon possession, they come and they come and overtake and they begin, they take the joystick of your brain and they begin to detect things. And so you go crazy. And that is why, according to the theology of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the stronger man, has to come and wrestle the demon off of the controls. And enables the human soul to take charge back again. So you need a stronger man who comes and overpowers 
the demon from the controls. Understand that? So the physical body is what enables the soul to function under the environmental conditions that are imposed by the life on earth. You have to understand this. When you go to the International Space Station, you can't just go there in jeans and socks. You can't do that. Why? Because your hardware is not fitted for that environment. So you have to go to NASA and get a special suit that is fitted for life in that environment. When you go into deep water diving, you need a special suit that is designed for you to be able to live in that kind of environment. And so this body is the dwelling place, that's the housing, that's the equipment that the soul needs to have life and function right here in the conditions of life on earth. Okay, understand that? And so the human body was made from the dust, that is elements of the earth, to fit it to the life of this earth. And the soul has to inhabit this human body to endow it, to give it the spiritual qualities for which God appointed this body to perform. And the human body was ultimately made this way because of Christ. The human body preaches the gospel. It preaches Christ in all its parts. It preaches the church and the relationship that Christ has with the church. And so human beings could not have four legs or four hands because Jesus had to come and be put on the cross, nailed exactly the way he was nailed. So men have two hands because Christ had to be put on the cross. That's the purpose of hands. Remember, Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And so all those who are in Adam were a type of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, see at the constitution of Adam. And the writer, Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit says, when you look at Adam, if you have to understand how Adam became a man and everything, that was all preaching Christ. He was the type. Salvation, life and righteousness were only to come by the God-man hanged on a tree through a body that dies, but a spirit that lives. This is very important. Fallen angels cannot be redeemed. Why? Because they do not have a body that dies a physical death. And without a body that dies a physical death, there cannot be redemption from sin. Can't be redemption from sin. And this is where grace becomes even more gracious when you realize that you did not have a choice to exist as a human being. You could have been one of the fallen angels without any hope whatsoever and yet not have any say about it. And yet God was pleased to make you a human being that you may partake of the redemption that is in the death of Christ Jesus. <laughs> So the fallen angels are irredeemable. And for this reason, Jesus had to take up human flesh. Because Jesus could not just come and redeem us without death. So he has to come and take up human flesh and have a body that can be subject to death. A human body that can die. 
But the consciousness of the body is not a mechanical consciousness like that of a computer. There's a spirit that forms the identity of the person. Such that when you and I die, I am going to be able to identify Mike as Mike. And Mike is going to continue to have the same memories that he has now, even better, even though he doesn't have the hardware of the brain, because it's left in the grave. Let's keep hearing this. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, we're going to have more scripture today than I've ever put in any sermon. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the body can be destroyed because it came from the dust. But the spirit, the soul came from God, can be destroyed. Only God is able to do anything to your spirit. Only he can bring all the suffering that we do ultimately in this life, we experience it in the physical body. Pain is expressed in the physical body. But there's no one who has any power whatsoever to destroy your spirit. Even the devil does not have that power. So the soul does not get killed as to be put in a casket. It does not cease to have life or cease to exist because someone drank some poison or they died. And so Jesus knows about these things. And so we have to say everything that Jesus says. The human being, I'm going to have to keep saying this, is not like a car. The human being is not like a computer that dies completely and is only animated back to life when you put gas in it and install a new battery. That's not how it works. That is a very materialistic approach to spiritual matters. And it is not correct. And that's the doctrine of the Sadducees. We're going to be talking about Sadducees because they approach things exactly that way. What are we talking about? We are trying to get some understanding, some scriptural understanding of what becomes of a sinner when they die and what that death means in the context of the gospel. When Lazarus died, when Jesus said, Lazarus, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, and then said later plainly that he is dead. What did that sleep mean? What did that death mean? What really is happening? When Moses died, what did that mean? When Moses died, you remember that he, him and his brother Aaron did not go into the promised land. They died. But yet we see Moses showing up with Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed up. And yet he had died at least 1,500 years before the Mount of Transfiguration. Yet he showed up. And his body was still in the ground. And so that has to tell you and I that when a person dies, there's only a separation of the physical body and the immaterial soul. And the immaterial soul continues to have a conscious existence. Listen to Luke 9. 28 to 31. Luke chapter 9, 28 to 31. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses in the company of Elijah talking about the death of Jesus in Jerusalem. <laughs> Moses had some physical body because he was identified as a man, some heavenly spiritual body that he had, which was not the body that he used to have. And he had consciousness that he could talk about the death of Christ in Jerusalem, having a conversation. Now, someone who is dead cannot do that. <laughs> they cannot do that. And it would have been different if Luke had said, and Jesus was in the company of two angels. Totally different story. But he was in the company of Moses, the one that we know the scriptures testified of his death. Acts 7, 59 and 60. Acts chapter 7, 59 and 60. Stephen is being stoned by the Jews for preaching about Christ. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. <laughs> what is that saying? It is saying Jesus Christ is God. Because he is calling on God, and yet he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But after this, after he had thus prayed, we are told he fell asleep, which means he died. So if his spirit is received by Jesus, then his death cannot mean that his spirit also died. So falling asleep in the context of the believer is not saying they cease to have conscious existence. It is just the separation of the physical body from the soul. And the spirit separates from the physical body. Why? Because the physical body is no more able to sustain life because of the damage that has happened to it. And Stephen had prayed in the manner of the Lord on the cross also. Just some very interesting point there. When the Lord was on the cross in Luke 23, 46, and when Jesus had cried out the loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last in the physical body. But Jesus continued to exist before. <laughs> so having their spirit received by God is not saying the spirit was absorbed into nothingness. Because that's one of the teachings. They say when you die, your spirit returns to God but does not continue to exist. It only gets reconstituted into Mike in the resurrection. That's what they say. And that's false. By the testimony of Stephen and by the testimony of Moses uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. When someone says, into your hands I commit my spirit, they are entrusting themselves to the care of God in death. And for God to receive them on the other end. That's what they're saying. But let's talk about 
death in the Old Testament, and we're just going to work one text from Ezekiel. It's a representative text of what a lot of people carry from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Ezekiel 26. Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 19 to 21. And this is a prophecy against Tyre and is a description of Sheol and death as was understood in the Old Testament. So the Lord prophesies against Tyre through Ezekiel and says, verse 19, For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I'll bring you down with those who descend into the pit, to the people of old, and I'll make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. In Tyre's humiliation, this was a proud nation, and God is saying, oh, I'm going to bring you down. <laughs> I'm going to take you down. And you're going to descend into the underworld, into the pit where the people of old are. And this is just not like six feet. You see that? He says, I'll make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth. If this is just talking about their physical bodies being consumed by maggots, that does not make sense. They are dwelling in some particular location down underneath the earth. And he says, and you shall be no more, and you are not going to be sought for because no one can find you where I'm putting you. <laughs> and you never be found again. And here, if you read the whole context of Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel is saying the fate of Tyre was like an ocean that was sweeping over it. Like in verse 3 of Ezekiel 26. And then now he says the ocean depths would come and sweep over him as to cover him. And for this time, these guys are right by the coast of the ocean. They were mariners. And the danger that they faced was being caught in a storm and getting lost at sea. And now God says, Tyre would drown in the ocean and all traces of hair would be lost. And then Ezekiel changed the image slightly and says, instead of descending into the ocean depths, Tyre would go down to the pit. And the pit is a figurative way of expressing death. So pit is synonymous with shore or the grave. And when you read Proverbs 1, 12, Isaiah 14, 15, and a whole lot of Old Testament passages they speak of the same kind of teaching. Okay, So in the Old Testament times, death was such a fearful event because they did not understand the gospel the way that we do. And so they expressed it that way as a place where there was no hope whatsoever. But the saints of God, some of the saints of God really understood something about the resurrection as you hear from Hebrews 11. Because Hebrews 11 is going to talk about the Old Testament saints and the hope that they had. So those 
saints were different from the rest of the people who did not know the gospel. Okay. So Ezekiel expressed this thought about Tyre that she would enter the place of the departed dead and never be able to return to the land of the living and people would long for her but she would never be found again. And so that was a good summary of the understanding of death in the Old Testament. And we can't use that understanding and carry it forward into the New Testament. We have to hear what the New Testament light is on that aspect. Okay? Like with all reading of the Bible, I think you understand the Bible better when you use the New Testament as your lenses to go through the Old Testament to gain real understanding of what those things were, okay? But when people died in the Old Testament, it gave some understanding that Sheol or the pit was a place of unconscious existence. But that is not so. The idea that is expressed is the inability of these who had died to be able to come back again to physical life by themselves. When people died, depending on whether they were elect or, or not, they entered into one of two places. Sheol, the place of the dead, is the place of those who have died, whom God hated the wicked, or they went into Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was the hoarding place, the temporary resting place, the city of refuge for all those who had the faith of Abraham, the Old Testament saints. Okay. And in this place we are told, Abraham's bosom, that Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus had conscious existence. Luke 16, 19 to 26. Let's go there. Luke chapter 16. The Lord says, verse 19, There were certain rich men who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of souls, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his souls. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and sent Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there to pass to us. Many who want to minimize hell will argue and say this was just a parable. They'll say this was a parable. It was just some story, some fable. But if you read the New Testament, there's no parable that Jesus ever told the names of the characters. Never told any parable where he named the names of the characters. So this is not a parable. This is a real story. Because when Jesus was speaking in parables, he would clearly state, the scriptures would say, if you are, if you are reading the Gospels, they will say, and he told them a parable. 
they always qualify that. And he told them a parable. Also, this is not a parable because in the conversation that Jesus had with the Sadducees, he told this about who God is and what happens in the resurrection. Luke 20, 27 to 40. Luke chapter 20, 27 to 40. Luke says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took his wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The ones who are counted worthy of the age, they do not die. That's what Jesus said. And that is in keeping with the theology that Jesus says to Martha, the one who lives and believes in me who never die. So the ones who have been counted worthy by the gospel do not die. They don't. They get separated from the physical body. But let's keep reading. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, God is not the God of dead Abraham, of dead Isaac, or dead Jacob. But he is the God of the living Abraham, and the living Isaac, and the living Jacob. He is not called after the dead, but the living. So all the elect, they continue here in the context of the elect, they continue to have conscious existence. When we say when a person dies, they lose consciousness. We are holding to the theology of the Sadducees as has been spoken above and also as in Acts 23. Let's go to Acts 23 verses 6 to 9. The Sadducees were really some smart guys. They were a very learned group of people. You say, you could say a group of college professors, very smart. And so they didn't believe in angels and resurrection, all those things. But here what Luke says in Acts 23, 6-9, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. That's the Sanhedrin, because the Sadducees were also in the Sanhedrin. And so Paul, getting in trouble, almost getting to be stoned because of preaching the gospel, is like, okay, I think I have a way out here. I'm going to bring 
the resurrection. And I know what these guys believe because Paul is a Pharisee. <laughs> and so the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to argue. Okay. But this is what he said, verse 8. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees do not believe in spirits. They do not believe that when you die, you have a spirit that leaves your body. They don't believe that. And so those who are saying when the believer dies, they just die like a car, they are holding to the theology of the Sadducees. And listen to verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So those who say the soul dies and doesn't exist anymore, they are fighting against God. Those who are the elect of God continue to live and are preserved by God himself. And so Abraham continued to exist as Abraham even though his physical body was dead. And it is this Abraham that was in conversation with the rich men and Lazarus. And so the conscious existence of Abraham testifies to the conscious existence of Lazarus even the conscious existence of the rich man who was in fiery torments. So we are arguing here for the conscious existence of the soul before the resurrection. Jesus said, all live to God. They are dead to us because they have left the realm of our own existence. We can't see them. We don't see where they are, but God has them in their proper places according as he has determined for them whether they are reprobate or they are elect. So where was Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, when he died? Where did he go? For the four days, where was he? When Lazarus died, his physical body separated from his soul. His body shut down, his organs, all that respect and sustains the physical life shut down because of sickness. And so it was not inhabitable for the soul, and so the soul departed. Remember, he had fallen sick. And so when the soul departs the body, it is escorted by angels, according to Jesus, to its respective place. As Lazarus, the beggar, was escorted to Abraham's bosom, the non-elect, according to to Jesus in the story of Abraham, the rich man and Lazarus, the non-elect just wake up in hell. The rich man woke up, which means he came to his consciousness and he was in hell. But the elect are escorted by angels to their place of rest. Angels waiting for them. So the rich man woke up from his nap and found himself in the place of need desperate need. God had translated him by his power right into hell. But we need to understand the progression of the revelation of the gospel in order for us to properly sort things out. Before Jesus Christ came and died, before the payment, the ransom price, the redemption price was paid to redeem God's people, none of them possessed the righteousness to enter 
heaven because you need that. The payment had not yet been made. And since heaven requires proper and full payment, no one could be in the presence of God. And so Abraham's bosom was the holding place of those who were waiting for the full payment of salvation to be made. Very important. The elect who were not condemned, they were not condemned, but they were not redeemed. (laughs) They were in the city of refuge. So Abraham's bosom was a type of the city of refuge of God's people who were waiting for the death of the high priest. These had the promissory note of Christ, that Christ was going to come someday. So they had the hope. They were looking to the ultimate Lamb of God coming and making that sacrifice for them. Because all these guys, they knew about the sacrifice. Right from the beginning. All these guys, right from Adam, he knew about the sacrifice. And this is the teaching that we find in the Day of Atonement. We're not going to talk about a lot of the theology there. But we're going to pick out some very specific teaching from Leviticus 16 that relates to our topic. Leviticus 16, verses 16 to 17. Leviticus chapter 16, 16 to 17. Moses says, So he shall, and that's Aaron or the high priest, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. For all their sins, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. On the day of atonement, and this happened only once a year, no man was to be in the tabernacle of meeting. And the tabernacle of meeting is where God, Shekinah glory, came in the midst of his people. And this was the place where atonement had to be performed. So the Holy Spirit says, the high priest went in to the holy place to make atonement. Okay, to make atonement by way of the blood sacrifice and by the way of the appointed high priest. And this was the way that men have to approach a holy and righteous God. God has to come and teach Lori how to approach him because Lori, because of sin, does not know how to approach such a person. So this is how you approach such a holy and righteous person. You approach him by way of blood and by the way of the high priest that has been appointed by him. You hear the gospel that? So on the day of atonement, the high priest Aaron, in this case, had to enter with the blood of a sacrifice into the holy of holies. And when he did that, the text says no one could be with him in the whole tabernacle. Nobody. No one but himself. What does that mean? No one could approach as to meet with God until the sacrifice had been given and accepted. And this is also speaking to the fact that when Christ made atonement, he made it all by himself. (laughs) No one helped Jesus to make atonement for us. Nobody. 
So God says, when the high priest goes in, no one is supposed to be in there. Guess what? I'm going to kill you if you get in there. So as long as the veil, as long as the veil stood between the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant where God appeared, it testified that the way to God had not yet been opened. And that's Hebrews. And we're going to touch that later on. So as long as the old covenant stood, the way of peace with God had not yet been opened and none could go to heaven. As long as the old covenant was still standing, there was no man, even though they were electing Christ, there's none who could die and go to heaven straight. Why? Because the payment had not been made. Christ had not yet showed up and he had not been crucified. As long as the old covenant stood, the sacrifices and the priesthood were not enough to make atonement that would cause anyone to meet with God. And because of that, there was the Abraham's bosom for the elect. Very important. On this day of atonement, the text says the people were only allowed to enter into the tabernacle after the high priest had already entered the Holy of Holies, made the sacrifice, finished that work, and then came out alive. The high priest had to come out alive because if God killed him because he did not do something right, guess what? No one would ever be able to go into the tabernacle because they'll get killed. <laughs> what is that saying? The coming out of the high priest was a type of the resurrection of Christ after he had offered himself, after he had died and finished the work of salvation. With respect to Christ, the day of atonement is the death of Christ on Mount Calvary. This is the day of atonement. Understand me. On the cross, Jesus was both the sacrifice and the high priest. When you read the New Testament, it uses the language of he offered himself. So he is offering himself as the high priest and as the sacrifice. And so until he had offered himself and resurrected, none could enter heaven because God had not yet received and accepted the redemption prize or the handsome payment for them. And that is why when he died, immediately this happened. Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 50 to 53, Matthew says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Just pay attention, is the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The veil of the temple is what separated the people from approaching God in the holy of holies. And this veil was ribbed from the top to the bottom. See the direction? Not from the bottom to the top. Because if it's coming from the bottom it's men who is ripping their way into access with God. 
is God who rips the veil from the top to say, I am the one who has to open the way for you to come. It's all the work of God. He's the one who does it. And so, as soon as Christ has made the payment, guess what? Some of these people, God is showing by this picture that as soon as the real payment is made, then his people now have access to come to heaven. So the saints are headed to heaven because the payment had been made. Listen to this. Hebrews 9, 6 to 8. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. The writer of Hebrews is giving us some understanding of the operations of the tabernacle and giving us some theological understanding. And he says, verses 6 to 8, Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The holiest of all, the holy of holies or the most holy place is the place of where God shows up. And he is saying as long as that veil continues to stand, that veil that came by the old covenant continued to stand, then access to God was not there. It was not there. And so the veil, when it was ribbed apart, was the opening. And God saying, now you can come to me. You can come to me. Okay? But hear this again. Hebrews, stay in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. The light of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So we have boldness to enter the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, which no man was able to do. And this is a new and living way. It's not by the way of dead animals. It's by the way of the living Christ. And this way was given us through the veil that is his flesh. The, the reaping of the flesh of Christ is what opened the veil. So the body of Christ needed to be ribbed apart, not by man, but by God, that the way to him may be opened for us. Okay, And so that ripping of the veil was speaking of the total and complete access and forgiveness that sinners have been given by the blood of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews again would say in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore in the wake of all that, in the understanding that there's nothing that separates you and God, let's now boldly enter, come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find mercy and find grace in the time of need. Because if you were under the law, you could not boldly come. You could not. Why? Because you get killed. Because the law says, don't go in. Only the high priest. But now the New Testament says, you all come in. Boldly. Don't be afraid. Come in. Yes, it's fearsome, but come in still. Nothing is going to happen to you. Don't be afraid because of your sin. Come still. Your sin is not going to condemn you because the blood is there to cover you. 
Okay, <laughs> let us boldly come without any hindrance because the payment has been made and accepted and the high priest has entered once and for all to appear before God for us. So the resurrection of Christ is testimony that the payment and access was permanently and forever opened and this was good news for those who were in Abraham's bosom waiting to hear that as it is good news for us looking back to the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. We are looking back to the cross. For the same news, did he die? <laughs> did he resurrect? Because if those things happened, it's all good. <laughs> That's all. That's all we are talking about. If he died and he resurrected, then it means he came out of the place of atonement and God was happy with what Christ offered and all the people are now being invited to come into his presence. So why is that important? It's important for you to know what happens to you when you die, if you die today. Because when you die today, you are leaving this place with a testimony that you are not going to Abraham's bosom. You are going to heaven. Heaven. Why? Because the payment has already been made and has been accepted. There's nothing right now that separates you and God. Zero. There's not, not a single sin or there's no sin for you. Why? Because it was all put on Christ. It was all put on Christ. All your sins were put on Christ. So your sins as they stand right now, you are experiencing them in time, but God already put every one of them on Christ. So there's completely nothing that stands between you and God. Zero. So when you die, you are not waiting for the resurrection of your body. You go to Christ. And we're going to find out if that's what the text says. When Lazarus died, his sleeping was death. But his death was not an unconscious existence of the soul. Understand that. He died. He was sleeping. But that sleeping does not mean unconscious existence. That's not what it means. So even the thief on the cross, when Jesus said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. And people would come and play games with the comma and say, Today I say, they move the comma around to try and say, Or oh, the thief on the cross actually did not go to paradise. No, that's just playing gimmicks, okay? I don't care where you put the comma. I'm, I'm going by what Jesus said. Okay, you keep your coma. <laughs> so when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, he had to make his physical body healthy again. He had to kickstart all the organs and everything because they had died. The maggots were already on him. So Jesus has to reconstitute that body and make it healthy. And then he rejoins as he did in the first creation. <laughs> The story of Lazarus is a replay of the first creation. He made man out of the dust and then he breathed life. With Lazarus, Lazarus dies. And the death of Lazarus is announcing the beginning of the new creation that is coming by the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what is happening. And it's Jesus who is doing all that. It's Jesus who is doing that. Let's hear the New Testament teaching post the cross. The New Testament testimony on the subject, First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. First Thessalonians 4, 13, 18. Apostle Paul writes and says, But I 
do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I don't want you to be ignorant. Why, Paul? Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The gospel is the message of comfort. This is a message that I can bring to a believer who is believed. I can bring a message of hope to them. Those who sleep in Jesus are not those who are unconscious in Jesus. The Holy Spirit knows everything about words. If he wanted to tell us about unconsciousness, he would have said, all those who are unconscious in Jesus will come with him. It does not say that. It means the believers who died in Christ believing the gospel, but whose souls went to be with the Lord. And so as the Lord returns, he raises their bodies from the ground and then he rejoins their bodies with the spirit and they become one. So that has to happen and it happens instantaneously. <laughs> so the bodies of dead Christians will be resurrected immediately before the living Christians are conveyed upward. Second Peter 1, 12 to 15. Second Peter 1, 12 to 15. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my disease. Apostle Peter says he is going to lay off his tent, his earthly dwelling. The body is the tent that the soul lives in on earth. It's an earthly dwelling. And if you are laying off, it means you are taking off something from something. You are taking off your jacket. You take off your jacket from your body and you put your jacket in the closet. And so when the body is being taken off in death, the body is put in the closet of the grave and the soul remains. When you take off your jacket, you don't go into the closet with the jacket. You stay outside. So the spirit, when God removes this earthly tent by way of death, he leaves this earthly dwelling here because it's not yet fitted for heaven. But he takes the spirit. He takes the spirit. And the spirit continues to live. John 14, verse 1 to 4. John 14, verse 1 to 4. John says, sorry, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. 
if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The Lord said, he would come and receive the apostles to himself. How would he receive a dead body to himself? What is he receiving to himself? Because he said, when you guys die, I am going to receive you myself. What is Jesus receiving? Is Jesus helping them in their burial? That can't be what Jesus is saying. It can't work. If these guys become just dead and physically dead and nothing else goes after that, then what Jesus is saying does not make sense. John 14, 19. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you see me. Because I live, you also live. Because I live, you live also. Those in Christ do not die. They do not lose conscious existence. Hebrews 12, 22-24. Hebrews 12, 22-24. The writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion. Lori, Mike, and I, actually, we talked about that last night in a different context. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men, mad perfect, <laughs> to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, to the spirits of just men, made perfect. So if the spirit does not exist after death, how do we have the spirits of just men made perfect? The general assembly and the church of the firstborn. So the church of the firstborn is actually constituted in heaven. All those who were in Christ, who died in Christ, they are with Christ in heaven. So going back to Lazarus, when Lazarus died, or was sleeping according to Jesus, that did not mean that his soul or his spirit had also died as to be unconscious. Death is a separation of the physical body with the immaterial soul, but the person continues to live. God is spirit and yet he has consciousness. Fallen angels are spirits and they have consciousness and they can even be chained. God can chain a spirit. That's what he says in Jude chapter 1. Jude 1, 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains. They're in chains. Under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these are spirits who do not have bodies, but yet God somehow is chaining them. I don't know how he does. What kind of chain he uses. Okay. So demons are spirits and yet have consciousness. And so the believer has this hope that because of Christ's payment of their ransom, when they die, they not only retain their consciousness, but they also go to heaven. Apostle Paul said, Philippians 1, 19-26. Philippians 1, 19-26. For I know. Well, Apostle Paul is not talking about an opinion then. I know. Now, that's such confidence. 
I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is unconsciousness and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Apostle Paul here is in a conundrum and he is saying, I am trying to decide. And he is not choosing between unconsciousness and consciousness. That's not what he is deciding. He is choosing between remaining with the saints or going and being with the Lord. Which he says is gain. He says it is far better if he dies because then he shall be in the presence of the Lord. Verse 23 to 26. For I am hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better. How can it be far better if someone is just going to die? Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, for your sake. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. First Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 8. Apostle Paul says, For we know, <laughs> again, that if our earthly house this tent, this body. For we know, if this earthly house, you see the function of the body, is an earthly house, it's not a heavenly house. When it's destroyed by death, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. And that is a summary of what Jesus said in Mark 14, 57 and 58 when these guys were accusing Jesus. They said, verse 57, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, that's against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. So the believers shall have a body that is not made with hands. Continuing in Second Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 8, picking up on verse 2, for in this we groan, we're actually very close to the end, so just hold on for a minute, okay? If you can believe a preacher. I'm testing your faith. <laughs> Verse 2, 2 Corinthians 5. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent... This tent, again, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee or down payment. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So as long as we are in this physical body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, verse 8, Yes, well pleased, rather 
to be absent from the body and to be where? And to be present with the Lord. So death is the unclothing of the soul. And when the unclothing happens, it also ushers you into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body in death is not staying at the church house where you were buried. <laughs> it means you go to be with the Lord, which is gain and which is much better. And according to Jesus, when the believer dies, they get escorted by angels and be brought to him. Which means the angels know something on that day. They know something about when you're going to die, where you're going to die, and what time you're going to die. They have the schedule. <laughs> Why? Because the angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Listen to this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to do what? To minister for those who will inherit salvation. To minister to you. To minister to you even now. To minister to you even at your time of death. According to Jesus, as we read, the angels took poor Lazarus when he died because he didn't know where to go. Because when you die, you don't know where to go. Where is heaven? Do you go to California? Which plane do you catch? You don't know where heaven is, so you need the angels to come and get you and bring you where the Lord is. So whether you die in a plane crash, fall into the sea, and are eaten by a shark like what's going to happen to Brother Mike, anywhere you die is the appointed place for you to die. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's always a highway from wherever you are to Jesus. No, you have to get this. It doesn't matter where you die and how you die, there's always a lane that says Jesus, whatever point of death is there, is clear. It is the clearest way that you ever travel on. No potholes. Okay? It is called the Jesus only lane and it doesn't even have any detours. It doesn't have any exits. So there will be angels waiting to greet you by name because they know you. They will say, hi, Robert. <laughs> like, uh, dude, where did you come from? They know you. They've been appointed by the Lord to bring you home from eternity. You are not going to get lost, my friends, whether you lose consciousness. Because this is important theology. Because between now and when you take off this tent, something may happen to your physical health and you may lose your consciousness. You may lose your ability to process things and understand things to disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all those kind of things that affect the brain. So what hope do you have to see the Lord when you are not able to do anything? You're just lying in bed and you remember nothing about all this stuff. Where is your hope? Your hope is in that he is faithful. <laughs> he is faithful and he made full payment for you. 
He knows where you are. And he's going to send his angels and say, Lori, this is the way. We are going this way. And according to Job, the days of our lives are determined by God right to the second. They are determined. We are not going to get two extra days because we changed our diet from GMO to organic. Okay. We are going to live right exactly to the minute, to the second that God appointed for us. Job 14, verse 4 to 5. Job says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one, since his days are numbered. <laughs> they are determined. The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. So when our appointed months and days have come to pass, they can't go beyond the appointed limit. And when the time is come, the angels shall be dispatched to say, Oh, today you're going to go and get this person because I'm going to take them by way of a car accident. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be painful to us who hear it, but everyone has his or her way that has been appointed for them to come. Death is not your enemy at this point. It's not. Death is what opens you to the other world. For the saints, death is free transportation to glory. For the fare was already paid on the cross by Jesus. And so the one who died believing are they who slept in the Lord, which means they rested. So the sleeping there also is speaking to the rest that they have because they are in Christ. Their physical body rested from the infirmities and corruption of the flesh. And their souls rest because they finally entered into God's own presence with the Lord Jesus Christ. So sleeping is used only for those who died in the Lord because the death of the physical body is temporary. Okay, so this is where we are. Sleeping is used only for those who died in Christ because their death is temporary. But as one old saint said, Death for the believer is only but a putting off of an ill-fitting shoe. It's a shoe that just fits badly <laughs> and you're almost walking on your toes. And in death, you get rid of that and you, you begin to walk freely. <laughs> so I said all that to say, I do not think that the scriptures teach soul sleep as someone actually remaining unconscious when they die. And I don't think they teach that they saw sleep even for the unbeliever. I think that according to the testimony of scripture, that the unbeliever and the believer, they continue to maintain consciousness. Okay, The unbeliever consciously awaits judgment in the place of the dead and the second death in hell. The believer, meanwhile, awaits reunification of their body and soul in the resurrection of the body. And Jesus has already made a town payment of that resurrection and has given the Holy Spirit as a seal and guarantee. And the one who believes shall not enter into judgment according to Jesus, but has already passed from death unto life. The one who believes, as we were talking last night, has right now eternal life. The one who believes has eternal life. And if you have eternal life, then you don't die. You can't. Because you already have eternal life right now. 
Okay? So the one who was resurrected by the new birth shall not sleep as to wait for the physical resurrection. They are not sleeping as to be unconscious and then waiting for the physical resurrection to happen. No, that's not true. The resurrection of the physical body is only the resurrection that we shall be waiting for. The spirit is going to be glorified when we die. Okay? Apostle Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These passages of scripture become more important as we get older. As we begin to feel that the body is not the same as it used to be 20 years ago. They become very precious because they minister to us because that's a sure testimony of all those who are in Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. Okay? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the life that we have in Christ now is just going to continue even past your death. And so Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Yes and no, Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Your brother Lazarus shall live because he is one of mine. The testimony that I have of him is, teacher, the one whom you love is sick. The one whom you love, so because Christ loves you, you shall live. Not because you love Christ. Christ did not love Lazarus because the sisters made some free food for him. Christ loved Lazarus because he loved Lazarus. And Christ loved Martha for Martha, not because of Lazarus. Christ loved Mary for Mary, not because of Martha and Lazarus. So Christ loves you for you, not because of anything that is in you. It's not because you love Christ. No, it's because he loves you. And because he loves you, the testimony and the hope that he gives you is that if you live and you believe in him, you shall never die. And then he says, do you believe in this? Do you believe? Is that your testimony? Do you believe that you shall live and never die because I am going to live. I'm not going to die. Remember, I said, there's a guy who asked me, well, James, when you die, how do you like to die? I said, no, I am not dying. I don't know about you. I shall continue to live because my Jesus overcame death. Death is nothing on me. And so we'll close with the testimony of Simeon in Luke 2, verse 29 and 32. Luke 2, 29 32. Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon had seen the Christ. He had held the Christ. He laid his hands on salvation. And he says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart. Not only depart. Where are you departing, Simeon? I am departing to be with God's people. And I depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I shall depart in peace according to the Lord's word, for my eyes have seen Christ in his gospel. That's the seeing that you have to do. You have seen the salvation that is in the gospel of grace and you have believed it, for you walk not by sight but by faith. 
So what is the hope the Christian has when everything is said and done, whether Hillary or Trump is to depart in peace? Whatever becomes of this country, whether it gets poor or gets richer, there's no hope for you here. (laughs) Your hope is to say, I am departing in peace because of Christ's finished work. I am going to Beulah land because that's where your life is. It's hidden in Christ there. Praise the Lord for his gospel. Amen. I'm done. I didn't think I'll be done today. Especially since Brian came. When Brian comes, I have to add 30 more minutes to my sermon. <laughs> Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that he has given us and the testimony that he has given his people that they shall not die. These who have put their hope in him, they shall not see death, but shall only die as to be with you, which is far much better and gain. May this be an encouragement to your people this day to say whatever this life has been to them, broken promises, problems with family, broken relationships, whatever it is, physical sickness, that these are not the final commentary of their life. The final commentary for them is that they shall depart in peace because they have seen their salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for all the saints whom you have gathered this morning that you may be with them even as they depart later on to their respective homes. We thank you for bringing them here to encourage us and thank you for the words that you've given us to minister to them. And I just pray that you continue to bring remembrance to some of these things that you may encourage them. Lord, may you keep them on the road back home, help them to get home safely. And may you keep us here also as we stay behind. And Lord, we just pray that you bless all your saints who shall gather to hear this message. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.